When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Yves Agit about his new book, Subconsciousness, Automatic Behavior and the Brain. We are conscious of only a small fraction of our lives. Because the brain constantly receives an enormous quantity of information, we need to be able to do things without thinking about them, to act in autopilot mode. Automatic behaviors, the vast majority of our activities, occur without our conscious awareness or subconsciously. Yet the physiological basis of subconsciousness remains poorly understood, despite its vast importance for physical and mental health. Shedding new light on the physiological basis of our behavior and men- mental states, this book provides an innovative exploration of the complexities of the mind, with implications ranging from clinical applications to philosophy's thorniest problems. Well, Yves, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. How are you? Very well. How are you today? Uh, fine, fine. Thank you. So uh, as we have gone through quite unprecedented times of the global pandemic recently, I was wondering if you could start by uh, reflecting a little bit on how has it affected your you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Oh, oh that's a difficult question. <clears throat> I think that the problem of the pandemic is not the most important in this world anyway. Although uh, in this country, in France, we have already lost uh, 100,000 people. Uh, so I'm just following what the government is, is uh, telling us. This is based on the <clears throat> advices of uh, scientific experts who, who are supposed to be very good. So I'm just following. As far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> nothing special. I was uh, just confined, but, you know, uh, since uh, I have uh, most of my work is done through uh, visual conferences and (coughs) sorry, and um, all the more I'm writing a lot, uh, articles, chapters, books and so on. So I was not really affected by the problem of the pandemic. not seriously, I should say. Uh, on the contrary, I'm living in Paris and I have a, fortunately a countryside uh, house, a house in the countryside, and uh, <clears throat> and I'm uh, sharing my time between Paris and uh, the the countryside. So it's very, it was very, it's very easy for me. The only problem I have is that uh, most of uh, our French uh, uh, citizens, as you know, uh, are very special compared to uh, the other people in in, in Europe. Uh, they don't trust the government. They don't. They don't trust uh, nobody. By the way, they don't trust uh, the problem of vaccination. And therefore, we have a lot of problems. Personally, I've lost uh, four people around me, uh, two of my best friends, uh, one of my best pupils living in Lebanon, uh, 
and very recently an old friend uh, living in Sweden. And <clears throat> so um, it's a real disaster, but um, uh, we get adapted. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, uh, it's not really interesting, you know. Do you, <laughs> are you really interested in what I did? I am an old chap. Uh, I have a, I'm now 80 years old, but uh, I am quite vigorous uh, with a... I'm a repaired body. I have a repaired body, so I'm I am doing a lot of sport. I'm doing. Uh, I have a <clears throat> several, um, let's say, important duties uh, in, in in this world. Uh, I'm um, a member of the Academy of Science, and I have uh, some responsibility there. I am uh, the founder of a big institute of research called the ICM, the Brain, the Paris Brain Institute, where we have 650 investigators. It's uh, something which is very new and uh, extremely e efficient. So I am taking care of that. I'm not the the CEO of that uh, institute. I'm not the the chief, but. Um, I am, uh, let's say, sort of uncle, <laughs> and mm. uh, in the so I'm discussing with the researchers and trying to trying to uh, get a philosophy, uh, <clears throat> art, and culture uh, within the institute. So I'm organizing a lot of uh, conferences, uh, colloquia, uh, trying to. Um, uh, make a link between uh, neurosciences and uh, and and let's say humanities uh, in some that's uh, and finally I have some duties in the hospital I was the chief of the department of neurology at the uh, Salpetria hospital during several years this is a big department we are 250 uh, doctors there it's a large, large, large center taking care of uh, patients with uh, diseases of the nervous system, neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, uh, rehabilitation. <clears throat> and uh, I still see uh, a few patients there, although I'm not allowed to do this, but I do it because I think uh, I can be helpful in some way. So that's part of the, the obligations. But uh, in addition, I have enough time now to, to start to think about uh, what I did and what should be done in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you are a, <clears throat> a researcher and medical doctor, both, I was both, uh, you are always uh, implicated in routines, in habits, and um, we have not enough time to think about uh, what is important in life. Now I can do this, and this is why I'm trying to to write articles and um, books, <clears throat> like many, you know, uh, old uh, neuroscientists who start to believe that they're a good philosopher. In fact, they are not. But <laughs> I do my best. I do my best. And I try to, <clears throat> to um, well, I try to be helpful uh, in this society uh, as much as I can. Uh, as as far as my uh, curriculum vitae is concerned, I, um, I I I was born in Nice. Uh, I'm living in Paris. I did my medical school. I was a resident in neurology and then uh, became a professor and chief of the service and of the department of neurology. But in the same time, I spent half of my time having a, <clears throat> a scientific background uh, with a PhD thesis. I spent a lot of time in, at the Collège de France in Paris during four or five years doing exclusively basic research. Uh, in the field of uh, neurosciences, essentially biochemistry. And um, <clears throat> so I have both cultures, 
medicine and science. And uh, what I tried to uh, set up at the Salpetre Hospital was to build a sort of school of medicine, of neurology, based on science. The idea being that uh, if you want to uh, teach uh, and to uh, produce good doctors, uh, then you need to have uh, to uh, provide a... <clears throat> Uh, a teaching of uh, with a very high level teaching, and a high level uh, higher level teach teaching means uh, that this teaching must be based on uh, on uh, science, and this is why it, I why I uh, did a lot of science and tried to um, to set up a large laboratory. I had a, labora- a big, big laboratory in the field of neuroscience doing molecular biology, cell biology, physiology, and clinical studies all together, trying to make a link between basic, basic research and clinical research. And uh, this was, uh, I should say, a relative success. And this is, uh, this is in sum what I did. But I don't, think, I don't think it's very interesting. You see, it's uh, uh, like I, I did like everybody, and I was lucky enough to succeed in at, up to a certain extent. <laughs> I should say. No, for sure, it's interesting, especially for, for our younger listeners who will also want to follow their passion for neuroscience. You see, the problem of uh, <clears throat> the problem is, is different. If you are a basic scientist, you want really to discover concepts and to uh, provide ruptures in the field of science that is uh, really trying to bring up new concepts uh, in physiology, for instance, in neurophysiology. Uh, When you are a medical doctor, uh, you try to train students. And uh, how to train students, as I said, is to produce a high-level teaching which is based on science. This is why you need, you have a, a really important and uh, uh, link between science teaching and medical practice, back and, and worse. So that uh, if you are doing good research, the doctors are good. But if you have good doctors, then <clears throat> vice versa, you have a, a science can be very, very producing productive sorry sorry my 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 franklish is terrible i haven't spoken english since a long time no no it's good but yeah thank you very much for those distinction it's uh, definitely uh, important to train uh, uh, medical doctors uh, uh, in the way that you describe so mm-hmm. you bring all the wealth of your experience and curiosity for the neuroscience of mind to your latest book, uh, which is Subconsciousness, Automatic Behavior and the Brain. So can you describe uh, what is the book about and how did you come around to writing it? It's a long story. It's a long story which is uh, quite rational, if I can say. But the history is not uh, the most important. The most important is that when uh, you are dealing with uh, psychology and neuropsychology, that is psychology in patients, then most of the studies performed so far are dealing with the problem of consciousness. That is all what is dealing with what you do when you are conscious. And for instance, uh, basic researchers in the field of neuropsychology are working essentially in, you know, very new uh, brain structures uh, in, the, in the field of uh, uh, phylogenesis, namely the cerebral cortex, the hippocampus, uh, the amygdala, and so on in order to study intellectual activities, in, uh, emotions, and so on. And uh, <clears throat> I uh, was struck in my practice and also uh, uh, just uh, 
you know, just by thinking, that in fact most of our activities are subconscious in the in the sense that you don't pay attention to what you are doing. You don't pay attention. You are you don't realize you are not conscious of what you are doing. For instance, if you are walking, if you are playing tennis, if you are dancing, you don't. Uh, well, for instance, if I decide to walk, I don't uh, tell myself. I should advance my foot here and then use the second foot in order to put my foot here and set sarsa. It's done unconsciously. The uh, the word subconscious, which was used uh, at the end of the 19th century by a French author, by, by the way, Théodule Ribot, Théodule Ribot, or Pierre Janet, Pierre Janet, who was a great. Uh, a great me- medical doctor, a great psychologist, uh, William James too, uh, they use this, this word, but the, the word subconscious need to be distinguished from the unconscious in the sense of Freud, Sigmund Freud. Uh, although, as I tried to show in this book, the uh, unconscious in the sense of Sigmund uh, is part of subconsciousness, but this is just a little part of it. Yeah. So, uh, in in some, <clears throat> you spend probably more than ninety five percent of your life subconsciously, without paying attention to what you are doing, which is responsible for our most of our activities, motor activities, also emotions. And um, this is in in line with the uh, functioning of our brain. You know that our brain um, is uh, using twenty percent of uh, the of the whole energy of the body. That is that the brain is consuming uh, uh, ten times the energy of any organs uh, in our body. Therefore. Therefore, it's working day and night, second by second, millisecond by second. It's extremely active, and we are not aware of, of, of that. So the problem of subconsciousness it has a direct reflection in the functioning of the brain. So this is why I was interested, uh, I mean, uh, philosophically speaking, but in addition, when I started, uh, the reason, the history is also important. Uh, the reason is simply that when I started to uh, work in the, at the Collège de France uh, in Paris, it was in the, in the 70s, uh, I started to work uh, in the field of neurotransmitters, and in particular, uh, dopamine. And as you know, uh, the loss of dopamine is one of the main characteristics of uh, Parkinson's disease. And therefore, dopamine is produced in uh, the reptilian part of the brain, that is the oldest part of the, of the brain. And uh, we, this part of the brain is responsible for our automatic behaviors, such as I said, uh, uh, walking, dancing, etc., or or uh, any kind of routines you are doing without uh, thinking about uh, what you are doing. And uh, therefore, I was also uh, uh, concerned with the role of the basal ganglia. These reptilian structures are called the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia is playing an important role in in the occurrence of, in the functioning of subconsciousness. Uh, there there might be a sort of ambiguity between automatic behavior and subconsciousness Uh, because I I think that almost all, if not, I think all, uh, our subconscious, uh, sorry, our automatic behaviors are subconscious. But uh, you have, in addition... Uh, subconscious activity which are not totally automatic. So there is a a major link between the two, but it's not exactly the same, automatic behavior. So you you may ask, what is uh, subconsciousness? Subconsciousness is all our activities 
performed without uh, you paying attention. As I said, uh, uh, when I am subconscious, I, I don't think that I think, but I am thinking, but it's automatically done. In, in uh, a difference from consciousness, which is most or, uh, more or less the same, except that it's uh, not automatic behavior. When your cerebral cortex is, inactiva- is activated, then uh, you are able to respond to uh, unexpected events, uh, novelty, and so on. This is uh, uh, something which is very special to homo sapiens, um, that is our conscious activity. And I also, so I said that uh, subconsciousness is the autopilot. It's mm. like a, a pilot uh, uh, in the plane uh, who is putting the autopilot. Um, <clears throat> uh, that consciousness is the operator that is each time you need to do something which is unexpected, which is new, then you are you are you start to be conscious, and then you have at the top of it you have meta consciousness, also called the uh, cognitive uh, unconscious by some philosophers, meta consciousness, which is simply a thought about a thought, a thought about what you do, about you, what you feel a thought about about yourself. You may say, for instance, uh, uh, why am I existing? Which is something really at the top. It's a, it's a thought about a thought. And the big idea for me is that if you understand what is a thought, how a thought is produced in our brain, then you will understand, uh, you know, the, at the top, you will understand what is metaconsciousness because metaconsciousness is a thought about a thought which is very specific to uh, humans in general. Mm. So, uh, in brief, uh, I thought after all these were because of my uh, training at the start and what I did in my lab, I was a specialist in neuropsychology, but also in movement disorders. And then, uh, and because I think that uh, the, the the uh, concept of subconsciousness was put apart for too many years, uh, I, I would say during one century, uh, except a few a few scientists working. But uh, uh, I think that it's really a new concept and uh, which need to be uh, which need to be known by our uh, colleagues, uh, scientists, medical doctors and by the public in general. Because when you are trying, for instance, to give a, an advice to a student, when you want to make a judgment about somebody, then <clears throat> you think it's always related to consciousness. But the best way to judge someone is to see how he behaves, how his face is moving, and from his uh, be- the behavior of his uh, uh, of his hands, of his body in general, the general uh, behavior, and from the way, the, how he's speaking, how his uh, face is moving, <coughs> joy, uh, etc., or uh, fear, etc., you can you can get a good impression, a very good impression of what he is really, what uh, how what type what type of intellect is uh, is uh, is the is uh, uh, what is the intellect of that guy and what is what are his emotions in addition so the best reflection of the personality of someone uh, is when you are able to see him without without any uh, voluntary actions because when you are behaving in the society, then you you play the fool. You you are masking yourself. Mm. You, in the society, you are not really 
you are not really what you are really uh, inside. If you can decide what what really you are. By the way, I don't know if you think, uh, if you know who you are yourself. I, uh, after all these years, I'm asking myself, I don't know exactly <laughs> who I am. But anyway, the best way to judge some someone is to judge uh, is to give to get an opinion of what you see when he is not aware. That is when he's subconscious, and the, it's the best reflection of his emotions and intellect. So, what kind of approaches would you use uh, to study it as well? So, as you mentioned, you would have uh, some laboratory experiments. Would something like brain imaging come into this? Uh, eventually, but uh, I am afraid that um, I'm afraid to tell you that uh, uh, I am relatively disappointed by neuroimaging. Uh, functional neuroimaging uh, was a, a real breakthrough. Uh, uh, there is no uh, no way. Of, obviously, this is a, a big breakthrough. But most of what is uh, shown by uh, neuroimaging has been described before simply by clinicians. So I have two ideas in that in order to try to answer your question. Neuroimaging is one approach, one technological approach uh, to study uh, uh, the functioning of our brain. Uh, but there are many others that can be simply uh, summarized in two parts. First, the clinical approach. The best way to, uh, to, to, to analyze the personality or the defect in the personality, for instance, in psychiatry or even in neurology, is to look very carefully at the patient, to discuss with him, to listen to what he says, to listen not only to what he says, but how he says it. Uh, so I think that unfortunately during the last uh, 30 years, uh, most uh, several neurologists and psychiatrists have lost the idea of uh, uh, examine, examining, examining very carefully patients. That's point number one. Point number two, neuroimaging is one way to study uh, uh, patients or uh, normal subjects, so-called control subjects, uh, but there are many others, and the the others are in 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 uh, in patients or in 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 in, in control subjects. This is certainly the best way. But you have also electrophysiology, uh, which is. Uh, use commonly but my real point is that you need to you know neuroimaging gives you a very rough idea of what is going in the brain you uh, the you you must uh, have in mind that in one cube millimeter of tissue one cube millimeter this is something which is very small you know uh, uh, one cube millimeter of mm -hmm. brain tissue contains about half a billion of connections. So with neuroimaging, you are looking at what cube centimeter. So it gives you rough idea. It's like uh, looking at uh, the, the, the city of Lausanne or uh, Geneva uh, from the moon. Mm. Uh, therefore, the, what is, I think the most important is to link what you are doing with neuroimaging and with clinic with the clinical approach to experimental work done using physiological means such as uh, you know uh, recording uh, within the brain of uh, animals uh, cell biology and molecular biology so there is a, a major link between molecular biology, cell biology, neurophysiology, and clinical approach. And the only way to uh, 
give an interpretation of what you are uh, discovering in the brain of patients using neuroimaging, for instance, or clinical approach, is also to, to make a link between what you are observing and what is the physiology behind this and what is the same biology. That is, how is your, the whole brain functioning but it, it's simply the sum of a lot of of lot of uh, neural circuits, and each of these circuits is made of different cells, uh, probably uh, several um, thousands of different uh, neurons, glial cells, and so on. And within these cells, uh, you have a, a, an enormous amount of molecules. Each cell is, is like a world in itself. So, uh, I mean, in order, uh, w the reason why I say this is simply because most of the, our students now, uh, it's not only in, in, in France uh, or in England or in Switzerland, uh, in Europe, in, let's, let's say. It's also true in the States when I'm discussing with my colleagues in the United States that the, uh, the students, you know, they believe they are doing research simply by uh, standing, doing the, the computer and uh, filling up uh, an Excel uh, table, uh, you know. So this is not research. You have really, to, be, to become a good neurologist, a good psychiatrist, I think now, today, uh, like before, but essentially today, you need to also to be a good not a good scientist, but to know exactly, to, to understand perfectly the pathophysiology, the physiology in normal subjects, the pathophysiology in patients of uh, different uh, uh, mental functions or mental dysfunctions. So in brief, if I sum, uh, neuroimaging is indeed important, but I would add two points, one, clinical approach, and two, basic science. And this is very, very important uh, as far as the training of our student, new students is concerned. And it's, it's not well done in this world at the moment. Excellent. So uh, just earlier on, you described very well the differences between conscious and subconscious processing of the, our automated responses like movement. And what about emotions? So how does our subconsciousness regulate emotions? Now, that's a very good question. It's more difficult. It's quite easy to understand um, uh, what is a, uh, a, a subconscious movement. You must uh, have in mind first that movement is the expression of our intellect and our emotions. Uh, if I do different gestures, if I speak with my tongue, with my mouth, uh, with my larynx, I am expressing myself using motor activities. All this is motor activity, so that what is produced by the brain is only made of motor activities. And these motor activities, what they are, essentially what you see on the face of the patients and the voice of the patients, and what he says, of course, is a reflection of your intellect and of your emotions. In fact, there is no intellect without emotion. There is no emotions without intellect. They are linked. We know where they are. these are linked at all levels in the brain, in the basal ganglia and the most ancient structures of the brain, but also in the most recent one, that is the, uh, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the, the, the very anterior part of the cerebral cortex. So if you accept this idea, uh, and you have to, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, then you uh, understand that in the brain, you have um, uh, neuronal circuits supporting all our motor activities. Other are supporting uh, our um, intellectual activities, reasoning, judgment, logics, etc., uh, memories. And 
finally, you have a third type of neural circuits who uh, are uh, responsible for our emotions. And these circuits are very well described. I mean, very well, up to a certain extent. But uh, so you have brain structures in the brain uh, responsible uh, for our emotions in the most ancient part of the brain, the the, the the basal ganglia, for instance, but also in the cerebral cortex. So that, and this is not known, you have emotions produced in the cerebral cortex uh, in relation with the amygdala, more or less, which are conscious emotions. For instance, I'm, uh, suddenly I have a, a terrible emotions uh, that, uh, and I'm conscious that, uh, for instance, I have, I, um, I have an emotions just uh, discussing with you, and I'm, con- I'm conscious of that. But uh, most of our emotions are unconscious. They are subconscious, I should say. This is what I try to explain. And this is, uh, uh, well, uh, in, uh, this is coherent with uh, uh, what we know from the, uh, the brain uh, f- physiology, as I said because you have all these uh, uh, emotional circuits in the brain. And <clears throat> I, in order to illustrate this, I gave the, the, the example of passion. Uh, I don't know if you have ever been in, in passion. Usually most of the people have, uh, know what is a passion when you see someone uh, that you uh, become immediately in love with. It can be uh, true for friendship, by the way. But uh, if you are in a cocktail party, for instance, you see someone and you see myself as a male, I see among my 50 people, I see a girl somewhere that, and they, that, that she, that, 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 the, the, the girl for me, she is, she, she is the, the girl. And <clears throat> you, uh, if you, and I, and interestingly enough, uh, the, it's something which I find automatic. You don't say when you see, uh, uh, for instance, uh, someone you uh, are in love with, you don't say, well, he's, uh, he has uh, blue eyes, he, he has uh, beautiful ears, and so on. You, you, you don't say that. It's immediate. Mm. It's immediate. You, 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 f- you fall in love like that. And you are not totally conscious. You become conscious afterwards. This is why I I described consciousness as the witness. You become conscious after. It's a witness. uh, And then, then, interestingly enough, using neuroimaging, one of my colleagues in London, uh, Dr. Zeki, show that, in fact, when you are looking at uh, people who uh, become in love, who are deeply in love, uh, the brain structure, which is activated immediately, the most activated structure in the brain are the basal ganglia. That is the most ancient structure in the brain, the so-called reptilian brain. Uh, And it's like animals. It's like pigeons uh, you know, in love, have you seen pigeons uh, kissing themselves on the, mm. <laughs> on the roofs of the building? It's it's very nice. Uh, they have almost no cortex. They have huge basal ganglia. These animals. It's like the reptiles, and uh, and uh, so I think that emotions, most of our emotions, such as passion like this, are subconscious and not conscious. And you you don't escape to your emotions. You don't escape uh, if you are angry. If you are if you uh, if you are in bad shape. If you are depressed and so on. You, it's not something. Uh, it's not something you, you decide voluntarily, consciously. It's uh, it's despite it's you are depressed despite yourself. Therefore, I thought that um, this is one of the aspects of the book that 
several psychiatrists, psychiatrists in general, I should say, and neuroscientists involved in the field of mental functions, such as, uh, you know, uh, mental dysfunctions such as depression, for instance, uh, or schizophrenia, or autism, should more carefully look at the basic ganglia, which is, I think, uh, the most important structure, uh, uh, the dysfunction of which uh, is leading to uh, several psychiatric disorders. I was just wondering, can you describe a little bit more on how would you think the subconsciousness is involved in these uh, disorders? Well, um, it's, uh, you know, uh, the reason why I was, one reason why I was also absolutely fascinated by the concept of subconsciousness is simply by looking at patients. If you are dealing with patients uh, who have uh, uh, lesions in the cerebral cortex. So cerebral cortex, which is playing a, a major role in consciousness, but not in subconsciousness, then um, uh, you see that, uh, in fact, all automatic behaviors are spared. Uh, in contrast, uh, if you have uh, disorders uh, uh, with lesions in the basic ganglia, then all automatic behavior, subconscious activities are, uh, well, are not functioning anymore. Although the conscious is, the example is Alzheimer's disease, for instance. Uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease are losing their consciousness progressively. They are, they, uh, as, I, as I said, uh, you know, they have memory problem, language mem uh, problem, etc., which are conscious uh, behavior, psychological behaviors. And these behaviors uh, are uh, uh, disappearing very progressively with time. Uh, whereas these patients can walk, they eat, they, uh, I mean, all their automatic behaviors are spared for a very long period of time. In contrast, if you look at, and in, in Alzheimer's disease, as you know, the cortex is, uh, is lesions, but the basal ganglia are spared. And it's exactly the reverse for Parkinson's disease, where the basal ganglia are dysfunctioning, so that these patients have lost their automatic behaviors. For instance, they, are, they have difficulty to walk, to speak, uh, they have a, 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 a slowness of thinking. Uh, their emotions are uh, also uh, less present. Um, but uh, for, uh, uh, in contrast, uh, they are perfectly conscious. Their intelligence, their memory, their language is totally spared. The problem is that they have simply difficulty to express um, uh, they express their thought and their emotions. Mm. You see, so there is a sort of uh, mirror image between uh, Alzheimer and Parkinson's. This is, is this is oversimplified, of course, but this gives you probably the idea that um, there is a sort of opposition between the cerebral cortex and the basal ganglia, which are linked together. By the way, they are nevertheless they are linked, so that. <coughs> dysfunction of the basal ganglia is influencing the cerebral cortex, in particular the frontal cortex, and vice versa. But um, so uh, this is uh, this is just to say that the diseases diseases dealing with subconscious automatic behavior are uh, disease of the basal ganglia and uh, disease of the cerebral cortex. Uh, uh, are, are dealing with, uh, are producing uh, mental disorders, uh, sparing all automatic behaviors. So on more of a philosophical part, so why do you think we're so interested and so captivated about studying human consciousness and subconsciousness? It's because it's characteristic of uh, homo sapiens. Uh, <clears throat> most animals 
don't have a, a prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex in most animals, even in uh, apes, even in apes, uh, is in apes it's very small. In the rat, it's very, very, very small, a little part of the cerebral cortex. So that if you assume that consciousness is produced by the uh, cerebral cortex, then uh, the consciousness of these animals is very small. And there are several uh, clues in favor of that hypothesis, which is still an hypothesis anyway. Uh, so that... Um, but in uh, in contrast, these animals have uh, 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 their. Uh, I mean, most of their life is directed, <coughs> sorry, by the basal ganglia, so that they they are the behavior of these animals is based on automatic behaviors. Uh, they um, and this is different in animal in in humans because we. Um, Conscious. Not only we can be conscious, we can uh, be aware of what is uh, going on here and there, and making unusual decisions uh, when something is unexpected, when something is new. But in addition, we have, as I said, this meta-consciousness, which allows you to have a thought on what you are doing, which uh, is close to what we call ethics, moral. In, uh, in 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 our society, moral and mm-hmm. ethics are something which is probably exclusive to human beings, and this is due to the fact that uh, the uh, frontal cortex, which represents more than thirty percent of the cerebral cortex, that so is probably uh, ten fifteen billions of neurons. Uh, this part of the brain is playing an important role, is really contributing uh, importantly to uh, consciousness and sub- and uh, meta-consciousness. This is very specific to humans. And this is why, uh, I mean, um, consciousness and, uh, and meta-consciousness are uh, studied so much by many inv- investigators in this world. But nevertheless, I think that, uh, as I said, the question of the role of uh, uh, the most ancient structures in the brain uh, playing in mental functions uh, is not uh, studied enough today. Although it was done in the past, but it's not done anymore, unfortunately. Mm. I think it's uh, most of our uh, activities... Uh, in society, uh, when you are voting, when you are discussing with people, when you are uh, taking care of your family and so on, most of of these activities are done subconsciously without you paying really attention. You are doing this automatically. And I think that this has been uh, forgotten. Do you think we will ever be able to completely comprehend human consciousness? I think so, yes. But uh, I am perhaps the only one, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, as I said, uh, we understand quite well uh, what is an automatic behavior. Uh, because mm. uh, we know relatively well um what uh, the the problem of the how the how the basal ganglia are functioning but you are asking a, 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 a totally other questions that is how how uh, inert material such as our brain which is a machine producing thoughts is really producing thought that the problem between what is inert a stone and uh, what is a thought how a brain is producing thought is a matter of discussion. And the, the way I see it is that thought is simply an information, uh, an information. Uh, uh, we are receiving information at the, uh, at, uh, in our brain, at the posterior part of the brain. It's then processed in our brain like a computer, 
but not a computer like yours or mine, but a computer which is unbelievably complicated, complex, and uh, and then you are producing actions. Uh, I mean, what you are perceiving and what you are doing easily understandable. Because, uh, you know, how you, for instance, receive information in your eye, and then it, it, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it goes to the, your, the posterior part of the brain and it, how it's done. We, we know exactly how, a, how you can perceive uh, something visually uh, or by hearing, etc. Uh, we understand quite well how we do gestures, how we speak, why. All these circuits are quite well known. The problem is what is in between, how the the what is processed, how our perceptions are processed, how our, our how our memories are processed in the brain. I think uh, uh, the the future of that uh, will depend upon the cooperation between neuroscientists and uh, and computer people. Uh, uh, artificial intelligence and so on. And uh, I think there will be a soon a big, big breakthrough in that field. Um, but um, are we sufficiently intelligent to be to understand everything? That I'm not sure. But uh, as we, mm-hmm. are, we are not really intelligent, probably. We do our best. Uh, but uh, it's simple. I think it should be relatively simple. Why should it be complicated? You see, we are uh, starting to understand um, uh, how does the brain uh, work uh, since about 50 years. And we are existing since uh, millions and millions of years. So we have time to to understand how how thought is produced by the brain, <clears throat> doing but, research um, or taking care of patients, um, you are thinking all the, all the day long about yes, your really patients, about your research. Or, it's like you the, about your work and so on. You, you so are, we are thinking all the time. People, uh, or, but or if you are writing, then you are writing, your thought is expressed with a language. And your language is transcribed into words, phrases, sentences, with some meaning on a sheet of paper. And then when you are doing this, the writing of the language is, because of the words you are using, is providing new ideas. So there is a sort of virtuous circle between what you think and between what, uh, what you are writing. In particular, when you are writing, because writing is the expression of is the simply the expression of your language. So there is a good. Um, I'm sure you. It's the same for you. By the way, I'm sure that if you write, this gives you idea. And if you have ideas, then you write them. It's so that uh, in brief, when you are writing a book, uh, I'm not a writer. Uh, but uh, I have uh, uh, written probably more than uh, 800 articles, scientific or medical articles, uh, but mm. uh, not books. But well, indeed, when I write uh, these little books, I started to write books uh, <laughs> not a long time ago, started less than 10 years ago. Um, uh, this gives you ideas. And uh, there is a risk, by the way. You, the risk is to uh, think that you become more intelligent, which is certainly not the case. That's an excellent point, and uh, that's really the value of this uh, long-form science uh, writing, because you reach this level of intimacy with your subject, isn't it? Yes. So what questions do you uh, still keep you up at night and get you out of the bed in the morning? <laughs> when you are dreaming, uh, a dream is, uh, uh, is part of subconsciousness, I'm sure. When you are thinking, how are you thinking? You know, you are thinking, your brain is, uh, activity, is activated permanently, as I said. And uh, with a lot of energy, 
as I said. And where, what, does, what do these neurons do permanently, day and night? They are activated. If they are activated, what do they produce? They produce ideas, uh, images, words, etc. This is exactly what happens when you are dreaming. Uh, it's a chaos. You have uh, uh, ideas, words, images, colors, and so on. It's a chaos. And uh, unexpectedly, some of these uh, chaotic uh, thoughts, images, feelings, sensations uh, might be conscious above a certain threshold. They become conscious, and this is what you recall yourself when you wake up. Uh, so you see, and I think that uh, this is the dream is a good example of what I said before, because during the day it's exactly the same. You th you don't think you are thinking, but in fact, in your brain, subconsciously, without you being conscious, I mean, your work is work. Your your brain is working permanently. And obviously, it produces emotions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And most of these uh, images, uh, words, uh, concepts, etc., uh, uh, be become unknown for you because they remain subconscious. But several of them, but above a certain threshold, suddenly some become conscious. And this is how mm. ideas is uh, is occurring in your brain. Um, I am um, I'm, I'm trying to 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 write something about that with a French philosopher called Roger Paul Droit. Roger Paul Droit, who is a nice philosopher, the the first philosopher I meet who is interested in the how and not only in the why. You know, most of my French philosophers, André Comte-Sponville and many others, or writers, said to me, well, you are interested in the, in the how, we are interested in the why. And uh, finally, I find this guy, and uh, mm. we are writing a book together about thought and, uh, and uh, gate, by the way. Uh, but it's a different story. Oh, truly fascinating. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on in addition to your book and also your next project? But this is what I said uh, I, with this uh, friend who, who is a mm -hmm. philosopher who became my friend recently. Uh, he, was, he, he gave a conference in my institute. As I said, I'm trying to organize different conferences in the field of art, culture and uh, philosophy. And he gave uh, a, a talk about uh, a book uh, he wrote about philosophers. Uh, and the, the book uh, is uh, the, the Walking, the Gate of Philosopher. Interestingly, most philosophers, except Hegel, uh, did, uh, were walking a lot. This is true for Socrates. This is true for Rousseau. This is true for... Emmanuel Kant, uh, etc. All Nietzsche, Nietzsche, uh, uh, all of these people were walking. And he said, interesting in this conference, he said, "Well, um, uh, you know, I think that uh, when I am thinking, it's like 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 uh, I'm walking. I am advancing, and I have some kind of disequilibrium that I try to to uh, adapt to my walking." So he, mm. he made a sort of analogy between gate <coughs> and thought. And I said, well, I, don't, I disagree. Well, I said, I disagree, but mm -hmm. I was not in disagreement. But I said, well, for me, it's different. It's probably like for you. I don't know if you are doing some sport, but if I'm running, doing some jogging or walking, uh, I'm thinking. Uh, to the point that when I um, I am unable to think, I am uh, you know uh, I'm unable to ad ad advance my work, then I am I'm, I'm taking a piece of paper 
a pencil and I am walking for one hour. And during that um, that walk, um, several I have several ideas that I have to to <laughs> to write on this small piece of paper. And when I come back, usually it's totally stupid, but some of the ideas are not. <laughs> anyway, so you see, there are two concepts. First, do I think like I walk? And second, the more I walk, the more I think. And we 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 are writing a book about that. Very interestingly, and the, 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 it's a pretext, in fact. The pretext is trying to, to talk about the neural basis of walking and compare the neural basis of walking to the neural basis of thinking. And it's almost uh, finished. And uh, I think it's, uh, we, we write it like a, a dialogue, uh, like platoon. It's very interesting and unusual. So it's a real pleasure to do this with, for the first time, to be able to discuss permanently with a philosophers who is interested in science. He is a materialist, of course, but he believes in science, and uh, I believe in philosophy. So that uh, <laughs> it's perfect. Sounds truly fascinating. I hope you come. Uh, talk to us about about it when it's out. <laughs> yes, with pleasure. Uh, may I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a neuroscientist. Yes. Uh, but a molecular biologist. Uh, so I study neuroscience more on the basic uh, level. Ah, what what kind of uh, science uh, exactly? Uh, Alzheimer's uh, disease, so study proteins related uh, to Alzheimer's. Okay, so you you are you you are at uh, EPFL. Uh, yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. And you are working with whom? I know several people there. I'm in the Lachuel lab. Uh, I don't know him. Well, I was a member of the scientific council of the Human Brain Project uh, at the time, so I went several times to EPFL. Okay, so yes, that's right. So we have the biggest uh, uh, brain-related project here at EPFL, uh, and uh, we can model uh, some sections of the brain uh, computationally, which is also quite uh, that's fascinating. That's very important. I mean, uh, what has been done in this field at uh, EPFL is is really excellent. This is the best way to do it. I had a, I tried to, I I, I tried to interfere uh, with uh, my friends there uh, by saying that uh, one should not only uh, uh, take into account the role of uh, neuronal circuits, but in addition, the, the, all the problem of uh, glial cells, in particular the astrocytes. Uh, but uh, I know that uh, several studies have been done in this uh, field uh, in mm. recent years, uh, in your laboratories there, but I'm not uh, I'm not uh, aware aware of the results anyway. Yes, it's uh, really inter interesting, and as you say, it's uh, getting really integrated. So we are way beyond looking just at one cell, at one protein. We take it into the circuits and uh, much more complex models. Superb, superb. This is uh, well. I uh, I would be glad to support this type of activity. I think that's absolutely crucial. Crucial. Okay. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also the book? Um, what, would, what do you want to know? So maybe you have a lab website, for example? No. Okay. So for the book, uh, it's it on the general uh, uh, book uh, bookstores and like Amazon. Uh, I don't know. It has been. Uh, it just went out. Uh, I mean, one week ago, I think, or two weeks ago. Uh, so I have no ideas. Uh, I was very glad was the editor at Columbia. Uh, they were ex absolutely delicious, charming, very efficient. And um, uh, the book was very well accepted. I have no ideas of uh, what the book will become in the in the in the recent in the more in the future. I don't know. I have no ideas. 
Excellent. And I'm sure it's on the Columbia Press uh, website, but uh, it's generally also on, on the big uh, ret uh, retailers like Amazon or eBay. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for all of the incredible insights uh, into the human subconsciousness and consciousness, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Yeah, uh, it was. it's a pleasure. I'm simply so, sorry because I have... Uh, the difficulty uh, sp uh, to speak English because uh, uh, since one year, and uh, as you know, because of this uh, stupid pandemic, uh, I was not able to 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 talk enough to to talk in English. So I'm sorry for my bad uh, Franklish. No, everything was very very clear. <laughs>